listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to the first show of the calendar year 2020. It's January. It's the 8th of January, the anniversary, of course, of the Battle of New Orleans, which in turn, in 1815, which in turn gave its name to the Great Fiddle tune, 8th of January, the tune which in turn led to Johnny Horton's uh, co-opting the melody, from that tune for his uh, hit song, The Battle of New Orleans. And so uh, things continue to link up to the present. It is a new season here at Civil War Talk Radio, our first show of the uh, academic semester of, of 2020, 2020, of the spring semester, although classes have not started yet here at East Carolina University. Uh, which is where I'm coming from, but not representing. Don't want to start the new year without the regular legal disclaimer, uh, not representing ECU or anybody else, even though I would be proud of our basketball team performances past uh, week in, in winning a conference game for the first time in a, a long time. Uh, but no, here in the Brewster building, but not speaking for ECU. Uh, my guest, likewise, will speak only for himself, as we always do. So it's a new year, but there's some continuation with the old year. I was looking at uh, email today, and an article came up with the headline, UNC bribed neo-Confederate group. We talked about that last semester, some the decision of the university system to pay the Sons of Confederate veterans over the Silent Sam statue issue, and uh, that story is not going away in the new year. We'll, We'll bring that to you as it continues to come up. Other things in the new year to look forward to, uh, show number 500 of Civil War Talk Radio will be with us some point. Looks like in April if we don't have to cancel anything due to weather and keep you aware of when that's going to happen. There will be not one but two Civil War tours this year. Uh, actually, more than two, produced by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, but two that I'll be leading, uh, one in May and another one in October. They're both titled This Hallowed Ground. So if you're interested in coming along and seeing the sites of Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, check out Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours and sign up for the May or October versions of that, and I'll be happy to meet you there. Uh, Another tour organization, the Blue and Gray Education Society is a, is a nonprofit that does uh, Civil War tours and other things. They have a newsletter, and I saw this week's had a very nice uh, reference to uh, the book I wrote uh, some time ago now, All for the Regiment, about the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62. It was interesting to uh, see, an artic- uh, see an author uh, in the newsletter calling that book back to mind, and uh, uh, he describes the book as one of the finest studies of Civil War combat I've read. I did not pay him for that, but it's nice to uh, have that brought back to mind. So, uh, always glad to get feedback on anything, uh, both connected with the show or that I've written 
uh, feel free to send that here uh, through uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org or through the Impediments of War Facebook page. Always you can get in, uh, get in touch with me here. You can also find out who's going to be on the show through those sources. Uh, coming up next week, we'll have James M. Scythes and his book, This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. On the 22nd of January, Douglas Waller, his book, Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. On the 29th, we'll get a return visit from Christian Keller, who has been on the show before. His most recent work is titled The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. And we'll start the month of February 2020 with a book that's been getting a lot of buzz lately online. It's called Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. The author is Megan Kate Nelson. She's been with us before as well, and she'll be back to talk about uh, that book in February. So lots coming up. Check out www.impedimentsofwar.org for who's going to be on the show. Mark Gaffney keeps that website and Facebook page in order. You can also donate to the program there. Uh, There is a PayPal button. Some people I've talked with recently recommended the use of uh, a, a website called Patreon where people get others to donate to their projects and I looked into it but it turns out Patreon takes a cut of what you donate there. So I'm cutting out the middleman as I have in the past if you want to contribute to the program which is not nonprofit, which is not for profit, it's not anything, it's just what I do. Uh, but it's not tax deductible is what I'm saying, not 501c3. If you send money here, it will. Patreon will not get a cut. Uh, you will not get a tax deduction, and I will use it to buy books for the show or miniature soldiers or a night on the town here in Greenville, North Carolina, or donate it to Civil War Preservation or just buy more bourbon. You know, I can do whatever I want. You can also buy books through the website Impediments of War, which does help us out uh, when you click through there. But let's get to tonight's book, the title of which is Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. Uh, The author, uh, Cedric de Leon, is a uh, professor of political science and makes the case for what happens when political parties lose their constituencies. The portion of the book we'll be discussing tonight discusses the Whigs and the Democrats in the 1840s and 1850s and the run-up to the Civil War. There's more to the book than that. It also talks about the Great Depression, when a crisis didn't lead to a party rearrangement, and then it talks about what's happened in the last several election cycles when uh, uh, both Democrats and Republicans have seen their traditional coalitions overturned and and, we're out of the realm of history and into prognostication there, so we'll leave that aside this evening. But we will be talking about this original crisis that leads to the Civil War, and uh, you're welcome, uh, as you listen, to draw whatever uh, parallels and conclusions uh, you wish to, and and you'll want to read the book and and, uh, see what the author does as well. But let's stop talking about the the author and, and talk to him uh, himself. Professor DeLeon, are you there? 
Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? I, I didn't get a, a... Yes, you are. Okay, want to make... Very, make, very good. And, uh, and it, is Cedric okay? Uh, call Cedric me Jerry. Great. Let, yeah, let's do sure, that. Absolutely. Yep. Wonderful. So you are not a historian. What, what is your day job? Tell us about what you do when you're not writing this book. Um, well, I'm a professor of sociology and um, a, the director of the Labor Center here at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. That's so the day it, job. Ah, and my apologies for saying political science when it's sociology, all all these social sciences. Uh, so while you are not a historian, I will say that you, you had me at page nine of your book when you were describing the caricature view that many people have of the Civil War as, uh, or of secession as being brought about because that's what the big slaveholders wanted, uh, and thus people assume it was the big plantation owners who pushed for secession. Um, and you, as you demonstrate in the book, of course, that's not the case. Uh, Southern Whigs, wealthy planters, oppose secession. And, and you write, uh, this will run counter to what many social scientists and lay people think they know about the Old South, parentheses, historians will know better, close parentheses. <laughs> um, yes, we do know better. Uh, and listeners to the show will know better as well. But the, the fact that that told me that this was not somebody uh, – just swimming out of his depth into the historical pool and going with caricatures of, of history. You had uh, obviously spent some time uh, thinking about this. So let me start with that first question. What What is the relationship between history and sociology as, as you see it or as your colleagues see it? How, how do these disciplines mesh? Well, I consider myself a historical sociologist and you know what that means is that I bring the kind of theoretical traditions and questions the sort of classical questions about the causes of revolution and democratic change and so forth um, to historical moments so I uh, you know it's I mean I suppose I could have gone off and tried to study the the Arab Spring in 2011 but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really I'm really a specialist in in, in 19th century um, uh, American political history. I think it's the most fascinating period and and case, um, uh, and I can't stop writing about it. Um, so, um, so I, I think that the way that they mesh, at least in, in my mind, is that you know a, a, a really nice way to you know address some of these classical puzzles um, of, of sociology, uh, mainly, you know, what are the sources of social change, is to go back and look at one of the uh, most transformational watersheds um, in, in world history, and that is the, that's the Civil War. I mean, there's so many things happening there. I mean, you can study, you can study uh, democratic change, you can study the, the, the shift from, from slavery to, uh, to liberal democracy, you can study the causes of the revolution, uh, of, of revolution, just by looking at uh, the run-up of the civil, to the Civil War and the Civil War itself. Uh, so that's, that's how I see it um, in, in my mind, at least. The other thing about this, a bit of a backstory, is that James mm-hmm. Thornton III, the, the you know the famous you know Alabama um, uh, historian, was on my dissertation committee, and uh-huh. that guy, it, you know, I mean, he was a dean. 
you know i mean this he 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 made me he made me excited about antebellum uh southern history um and um i i've never let go since uh, it it is certainly a fascinating era uh let me push further on this the a lot of historians are skeptical of other social sciences of uh, economics political science to some degree sociology because when you're looking at human behavior in the past, uh, you can't treat it like a, a, a natural science and that you can't run any experiments. Uh, you, you, you can't repeat the past uh, the way you can repeat a physics experiment. So predictive theory theoretically becomes impossible. Just And, and let me give an example. Um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, I had a political science professor uh, AFK Organsky, who had a brilliant theory that when one nation begins to overtake another, uh, uh, changing the, the order of hegemony, that is when war is most likely to break out. And this perfectly predicts World War One and Germany overtaking Britain. Um, unfortunately, that's all it predicts. Uh, if you had a theory that if you assassinate the Austrian Archduke, you're likely to get a war, that's a good, that's going to work in one out of one cases. But how do you apply that to anything else? Yeah, you know, I, I actually don't um, subscribe to the to the kind of predictive um, approach to the social sciences. I, I I just, frankly, like you, I I don't buy it. Um, I'm I'm part of a school of comparative and historical sociologists um, in the 1990s when I did my graduate work, who went. Who went to the archive um, for uh, for answers instead of uh, you know computational modeling modeling based on rational choice theory and and all the and all the rest of it? I mean, I um, and you know we did we did analyses of single cases. Um, my dissertation was a uh, was a uh, was on um, the the origins of. Um, anti-labor right-to-work legislation in Chicago um, in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and then my, you know, and, and I published a book on that called The Origins of Right-to-Work, and uh, this is my second uh, real monograph, and 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 my my case is um, is Annabelle, Annabelle in Alabama with a particular focus on, on Tuscaloosa. And that's, you know, that's that's a historiographical move. I mean, if you look at some of the mm-hmm. best books in recent years on antebellum history, there are about two towns, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, Ed Ayers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, exactly. Um, right? You know, like two towns, one in Pennsylvania and then the other one in Virginia. That's how you, I mean, that's, that's how you get to know, you know, that, that possibly you might be doing uh, doing something right because without that kind of level of detail and knowing who the real players were on the ground, what they were doing, not just how they were voting, but what they were saying, what they believed, you know, digging into correspondence and diaries. That's, I mean, to to my view, that's that is rigorous social science, um, uh, and it's also good history. Well, <clears throat> you you will not get an argument from me on that. I I. I I did enjoy reading this book, and I did feel at home that the author was was talking, was speaking historically. And you're right; there've been some some wonderful monographs um, here in North Carolina. Uh, Judkin Browning's uh, book on on the 
comparing two counties on the coast of North Carolina at the beginning of the war to show how they uh, evolved is exactly the kind of thing that you mentioned Ed Ayer is doing. Uh, one of my students, one of my master's students right now is doing just that, looking at two uh, neighboring uh, communities to compare them, why one supported secession, one didn't. Uh, and, and really, you do have to get down to that level to get into the weeds to answer these questions. Well, we're, we're just coming up on our first break here. Let me set the table for when we come back. Uh, the the, the four-word thesis, and I hope I'm not getting it wrong, uh, of this book is that we you see challenges to uh, political order, defection from one or both parties, reabsorption of those voters back into their parties, but if the reabsorption fails, uh, crisis and dissolution ultimately of the party and maybe of the country. Um, so we're going to come back and find out how that applies uh, specifically to the United States in the 1840s, 1850s, why the Whigs and Democrats couldn't deal with the differences over slavery that had lasted since the beginning of the Republic. Our guest tonight, Cedric de Leon, is the author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams. Each week, join Lemont as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cedric DeLeon. He is the author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. This afternoon, I was looking at my email. I got a message from a publisher, publicist, who shall remain nameless, that begins, Dear Jerry, if you think the Civil War is fought to end slavery, you've been duped. And it's about a new book that will change everything I think about the war, apparently. Um, well, yes, I guess I have been duped because, of course, the, the war was, was fought over the issue of slavery. Uh, that's not the question in, in your book, Cedric. Uh, you asked, the central question, it seems to me, is, is why 1861? Why not 1851 or 1871, for that matter? Um, is that an important question? It is an important question. You know, I think, I mean, we were talking about heirs before the break, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think he's right that asking the question of what what caused um, the Civil War is a, is a misleading um, question, because um, at any given point in the sequence um, leading up to the Civil War, one thing causes another thing, causes another thing. There's a kind of concatenation um, uh, of causes. And, you know, once one event happens, it kind of changes the terrain. And, and, and so what we really need is a kind of sequential account of what, of what leads um, to the Civil War as opposed to one kind of monocausal, you know, uh, story about about why um, uh, why the civil war happens. So I'll, I'll just give you an example um, mm-hmm. of what I mean by this. You know, um, you know this the the the, the school of, of historiography that James L. Houston Ayers and Elizabeth Barron refer to as the fundamentalists are these folks who argue that sl- that slavery was the fundamental cause of the war. The problem with that answer is that slavery had existed in the Republic since the very beginning and during the colonial period before that. If slavery were the decisive cause of the Civil War, the puzzle emerges, well, then why did the Civil War take place in 1861 and not in any other time? Right? Uh, Because slavery had existed in all the other years before 1861. Um, and so it falls to, to us um, to um, to suss out what were the what was the proximate sequence of events that leads to the unfolding of the civil war of the excuse me of the of of party politics leading up to the civil war at the time that it did and in the way that it did. Um, and so yes, I mean I think that's that's. That's really the question because it forces us to be more precise. I think that the fundamentalists are correct that slavery is the overarching cause and that no other issue divides the North and South more than slavery. But that doesn't explain why 
why things unfolded as they did. It doesn't explain the dissolution of the of the party system, um, and and that's what I want to get at, and that's why 1861 is the better question. Well, to what extent then does this take us back to the the capital R revisionists of the the 1930s of James Randall uh, and that mm-hmm. era who who blame the blundering generation who blame uh, right. politicians who who made bad decisions for self interest short term self interest uh, there 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 they imply they did imply that there was no underlying structural reason there was no need to fight a war slavery was not that big a deal essentially. Um, you're certainly not saying that, but but are, are, what's new in what you're saying then compared to the revisionists? Well, what's 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 new? I mean, and, and Ayers and Varon call themselves the modern revisionists, just to create a little <laughs> bit of daylight between <laughs> between Randall and the blunding generation thesis, because uh, right. that's not flying anymore, as you and I know. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I think you know. Um, I think that the the main difference between between Randall and 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 you know um, an appreciation of the of the contingent and unanticipated decisions and choices that politicians and organizations made in the run up to the Civil War is that we we now we now you know uh, um, believe we don't just concede we really do believe that you know. Um, uh, you, that the, the Civil War is fought over whether or not slavery is going to be prohibited in the Western territories. That political mm-hmm. debate from, you know, um, the Wilmot Proviso um, through the Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas and the Lecompton Constitution, none of that is understandable outside uh, 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 the context of a slaveholding republic. I mean, it's just, that's just true, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, there's something also happening um, apart from the important, you know, political economic context of slavery, which is that there are, there are agents, there are actors who are moving and making decisions within that overall context. And we need to understand that also, um, and I so so I think that's where that's where I differ from from uh, from from Randall. Mm-hmm. I also differ. I would say that I also differ from from Varen and and Ayers and these other these other so-called modern revisionists because mm-hmm. you know one thing that is not really questioned um, by I would say the mainstream kind of antebellum historians is the so-called sequence. The sequence, right? What James right. L. Houston in his famous 2006 review article says, you know, it's Texas annexation, uh, right? The Wilmot Proviso, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 54, uh, mm-hmm. Bleeding Kansas. <laughs> you know, everybody knows what the sequence is, right? Then the election of Abraham Lincoln, Fort Sumter, mm-hmm. and the war. And, and I don't actually agree with that sequence, um, which is another, I think, uh, that's that's also something uh, new. Um, just, so just as an example, we can get into it if, if you want to get into it more, Jerry, is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that Texas annexation is the beginning of the sequence. 
I think it is the, and you've read the book, so you know, it's, it's, it's the unanticipated defeat of Martin Van Buren for the 1844 Democratic presidential nomination that, it, that touches off, you know, the sequence for me. Because in my view, mm-hmm. Texas annexation does not become as much of a political bombshell without, without the, 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 the surprising leadership succession battle that happens inside the Democratic Party. Right, so that's that's just I, I'll, well, that, that's what I would say as, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, as as an example. Well, I I, I, let, I do want to talk about that. Your your point about contingency and actors, I also I find very interesting, and I think it's a uh, a direction the field is going in in a lot of ways. Um, military history, which I I obviously talk a lot about on this show, has always. Uh, had an emphasis on what individuals do, not not even necessarily generals, but uh, uh, an individual's actions can make a visible difference in how a battle is resolved. And and we're seeing more of that now in, in political analysis, and I, I think it's a, a welcome development. The 1844 Democratic Convention, which is what you open with, uh, I thought that was a fascinating discussion. Uh, everyone goes in expecting Martin Van Buren to be nominated. He had been president until 1840, uh, he's got a majority of the delegates lined up going into the 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 uh, convention. How does he not get nominated? Um, well, there's th- this again is deep contingency, right? Because you know th- tra- traditionally they would have had the DNC actually in 1843. And in late 1843, Van Buren actually had three quarters of the vote of the uh, of the of the delegate vote. Mm-hmm. But um, but you know a number of folks who were scheming to unseat him persuaded him that he should have the DNC in uh, in May or June of 1844, which was basically a ploy to you know to. To bide some time so that they can organize people, organize an opposition to, to Van Buren at the at the DNC. So mm-hmm. partly it's a it's kind of palace in, intrigue, right? This kind of within the party, these folks who are who are trying to bamboozle Van Buren into into waiting on staging the uh, the you know what what everybody thinks is his going to be his coronation, but right. he waits too long. He waits too long, and that's that's one of the things that happens. The other reason why he doesn't get the nomination is because of the machinations that happen at the DNC itself. And there again, there's all kinds of contingencies. There's the things that happen at the 1844 DNC um, in Baltimore could not have been predicted, right? We're talking about predictive social science. Nothing could have predicted what happened at the, at, at what one uh, author called the sleaziest political convention in American history. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's 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 incredible the things um um that 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 happen there. And you know, one of the things uh, that is that is going on and that lots of people really don't know. You know, we talk about James K Polk as the dark horse candidate as if, you know, they sort of plucked they plucked Polk out of uh, obscure uh, of obscurity and made him the president. But he mm-hmm. 
was a major player at that convention. He sent his lieutenants to that, to that convention, hoping that possibly he could be the nominee, but that he, they should angle for him to win the vice presidential um, nomination. What they found, lo and behold, when they got there, was that there were so many people who, who wanted to, um, to, to uh, unseat uh, Van Buren that they thought, you know, actually, we might have a chance of, of getting the, the top of the ticket. And so as the division is really heightening, and it's people, I mean, people are just losing their minds. I mean, it's, a, it's pandemonium at this thing. It's happening in a saloon called the Egyptian Saloon, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And it is, it's, it's absolute mayhem. And what the, what, the, what, the, what the Polk lieutenants quietly do is they say, you know, obviously our man wants to be the VP. He would be honored to do it. You know, but, but you know, for the sake of the party, <laughs> we'll take it's, the top of the ticket, too. And they signal it just gently enough that people who hate, Lewis Cass and these kind of like this new generation of whippersnappers, right? They were called the Young America Democrats. There's these folks who hated that, that younger crew enough that they, that they wanted just anybody who had some sort of relationship with Van Buren to nominate. Um, and, um, and so Van Buren's um, uh, lieutenants in New England and New York take the bait, take Polk's bait. And they say, well, hey, wait a second. How about Polk? And the thing is, is that Polk had been working the entire DNC, right? He was telling mm-hmm. the Van Burenites one thing, and then he was telling, he was telling um, these other folks who were for Texas annexation that he was for Texas annexation. And of course, secretly, he was an ardent imperialist. We know that now um, mm-hmm. in, in, in hindsight. But these are the kinds of things that happened to the DNC that eventually create a landslide for, um, uh, for, for Polk. This guy was no dark horse. This guy was a serious wily politician who, 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 who grabbed, really, the presidential nomination away from the leader um, of his party to everybody's surprise. It, it's a, a great story. You mentioned the, the floor managers of these candidates, and this being Civil War Talk Radio, it's worth pointing out, Van Buren's uh, manager is Benjamin Butler. Yes. Uh, and, and who was Polk's manager? Uh, I'm looking at it um, here. Gideon, it is. Uh, yeah, Gideon Pillow. <laughs> right. For, so, so as I was reading those names, Butler Pillow, I'm thinking the the population of the country at that time is about a twentieth of what it is today. It's a small country. Everybody knows everybody at the higher levels, or so it seems. And so, all these people are going to come back to haunt us uh, during the Civil War. We're going to read a lot more about Butler. We're going to see Pillow again. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, it, it's these familiar names pop up. So, the Young America movement, uh, the Lewis Cass, you mentioned James Buchanan, Stephen Douglas. Uh, mm-hmm. These people want to expand the country. They want to uh, uh, add new land. They they are imperialist in nature, and you make the point that this is a way of appealing to the the these. The prototypical voter, the the free white male adult who uh, is not necessarily uh, not wealthy, 
maybe has his own farm, maybe works for someone else. Uh, but this is a constituency they're trying to get to, and and by offering the prospect of expansion to the West, you're offering these people the chance maybe to, to get some land. Uh, it seems like a very uh, promising offer to make. The um, well, let, let's boy. I, I want to get into the ideologies of both of these uh, uh, these groups, the Young Americans and their their uh, opponents. They're they're both trying to find ways, uh, and and you point out the Whigs as well are trying to find ways to uh, uh, to appeal to the 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 voter of the time in a way that will promote that person's independence. You use the con- concept of dependency. Um, right, the sort of neo-slavery as the thing that everybody wants to avoid. Uh, if you can convince voters, under my rule, you will not be dependent on anyone. You will, uh, uh, if you can convince them of that, uh, you've got their vote. Yeah. So th- th- that's a big topic. Let's take another short break. Come back and and focus on that uh, for a moment, and then. Uh, zip forward in our time remaining to see how these parties disintegrate. Uh, our talk, our guest tonight, Cedric DeLeon, is the author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cedric DeLeon, author of Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. We've been talking about the 1844 political convention that nominates James K. Polk, who becomes president, and the amazing uh, series of one unpredictable event after another. I mean, you don't even get to this point if if William Henry Harrison doesn't die in office after a month, uh, if Secretary of State Upshur doesn't get blown up by a gun demonstration and John C. Calhoun <laughs> takes over. All these things have to happen. But then Polk's in, Mexican War, uh, yeah. New territory. The Democrats are promising, "Hey, land for everybody." Uh, right. What are What are the Whigs promising? Well, the the Whigs think that this uh, that that this uh, public policy agenda of uh, of manifest destiny is completely foolhardy, and that it's it's changing Republican institutions. I mean, you know, the United States, from its very foundation, was a settler colonial society. That's just that's just true. But you know, this this particular period is um, is is uh, aggressively uh, expansionist, and Whigs are genuinely uh, worried that this is that it, that that the United States becomes primarily an imperial power. Uh, on the continent and ceases to be um, a republic. Um, and you know what what they say is you know forget about all of the all of these you know fantasies about economic independence uh, out west. Why not try to develop and better yourselves where you already are? You know, build your skills, save some money. You know, buy a shop. You know, do do mm-hmm. something that's here and that's you Stop know and drinking. that's now. Why? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and 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 the Democrats say, oh, these guys are just you know they 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 lack imagination. They just want you to stay in in these eastern cities so that you can work for them. Right. What you need to do is strike out on your own and become your own man, become economically independent, get some land for yourself and be a farmer. That's what you came to this country for. That's what you'll get if you stick with us. If you stick with the Whigs, you'll get no land. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's that's sort of like, you know, what the what what the debate um, is about. And it it does align, you know, with with the two sides uh, of the Mexican-American War, the Whigs, uh, you know, being basically anti-war and the Democrats being ardently pro-war. Um, so that's that that's the I would say that's the state of political debate at that time. Now, in 1848, then, uh, ironically, the Whigs, who are anti-war, nominate a general, Zachary Taylor. And it seems to me that they uh, – well, well, at this point, we're skipping over, I guess, the biggest moment of all. Um, up to this point, the Whigs and the Democrats have been arguing over these, these two different ways for the common man to get ahead, whether it's move west and get land or – improve yourself, build the country builds internal improvements, creates the American system, uh, high tariffs, yeah. raise money. Everybody, uh, the rising tide lifts all boats, prosperity will trickle down, everybody will benefit. That's the Whig right. position. Yep. By 1848, though, 
the issue of the Mexican War and what's going to happen to that land uh, has op- opened the door to an issue that no one has been talking about this whole time, which is chattel slavery. What happens right. now you've got the land in the West. The Democrats of the South are saying, let, uh, uh, let every Southern farmer bring his slaves and go West. But you've got Northern Democrats like, like Wilmot saying, mm-hmm. no, then we can't go West because the slave masters will have preempted it all. There'll be no That's honest right. labor for free white men to do. Uh, it, can the Whigs put that genie back in the bottle in 1848 and stop talking about the West? That's what they think they can do, <laughs> they, <laughs> and that's why and that's why they nominate General Zachary Taylor, right? What mm-hmm. they do is they package Taylor as um, a, a, a second George Washington. Right. What the country needs at this time when people are debating this incredibly toxic issue of, um, of the legality of slavery in the unsettled Western territories is somebody who is above all party and cares only for his country, and that is General Zachary Taylor. So it's not really a kind of anti-war uh, platform that the that uh, that the Whigs run Taylor on. It is more of a uh, let's unify um, um, as a as a country, and there are not very many people who can you know who can lead us out of this uh, this political moment. Taylor is is one of them, and that's because he's he's George Washington reincarnated. That's that's what they that, that, that's what happens. Um, and and so and so what 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 happens with with his with his election and then and with the Whigs' cooperation with with certain Democrats, most famously Stephen A. Douglas, is they they basically fashion the Compromise of 1850, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which which they think is going to put the genie back uh, in the bottle because it basically you know they thought that it spelled out. The terms under which the country could expand uh, to to the the West Coast, so that there would be no argument, right? Uh, you know, oh, you're 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 upset that California is free. Well, that were that's part of the compromise. Okay, we agreed to it. You know, you're, we're not going right. to let's not relitigate that. Okay, um, you know, that was the idea, right? Let's reach a compromise. Let's just let's settle it once and for all, right? Um, uh, and um, and 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 the Whigs really, I would say, even though Stephen A. Douglas was 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 an important player in that in that effort, I would say the Whigs really led the charge. They they provided the bulk of the support and leadership for compromise um, in 1850, and they become immensely politically uh, popular um, for ending this this toxic uh, debate that was that was started by um, by David uh, Wilmot's. Uh, proviso in 1846. But if the Whigs are so popular, and if the crisis is is over now, uh, why did the Democrats win the presidency in 1852? Boy, you're really teeing these up for me, Jerry. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, because we've been talking about contingencies and surprise Mm -hmm. and unanticipated things, and this is a, a perfect example of that, right? The Whigs... You know, in their success, right? Actually, there's a there's an unintended consequence to their to their success, and that is it 
ends internal division, not just inside the Whig Party, but also in the Democratic Party, which means that the Democrats begin to unify again. They become to, they start to look like their old selves, um, um, and they start running the table in all sorts of different regional, uh, local, and state elections. Um, and and it's 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 uh, and they win the 1852 presidential election because basically the Whigs succeeded in ending factional strife over slavery, right? Uh, and then and 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 then and then what happens? And I think this is this is another way in which I think the book makes a contribution to the historiography, right? Mm-hmm. Because because. So many historians who write about the antebellum period focus on Southern rights Democrats, secessionists, the fire eaters. That's sort of like where all the action is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I want I want to say that what the Whigs did in this period is just as consequential and catastrophic as anything that the Democrats did, because what the Whigs do once the once Pierce wins the eighteen fifty two presidential election is they 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 panic and they start searching for a new political issue that's going to create a nationwide conservative electoral coalition and what do they choose they choose nativism they uh. think if they can gin up anti-immigrant anti-catholic sentiment you know they they can not only defeat the democrats on a brand new issue but they can also avoid the relitigation of the slavery question. So, but problem, I mean, by this time, oh, the, the 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 classical issues between the two parties, the national bank, the tariff, and the internal improvements are long dead. They're they're, they're right. moot. The issues won't be discussed any further. And right. the Western slavery issue is is dangerous. Nobody wants to talk about it uh, right. because disunion lurks in the wings. And so picking up nativism as a new issue, uh, it's not though like they just invented it because there's the know-nothings are already there, right? Yes, that's right. The know-nothings are already there, and they're winning in all of these populous states like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. And the Whigs sit there and they say, hey, this is a really interesting idea. Let's co-opt the know-nothing party and make that our platform and let's let's ride this new issue to back uh, to the White House. The problem is that it creates division within the party in the North and South, and it tears the republic apart. And I think it's what the Whigs do in this period that leads directly to the secession crisis. Because anti-slavery extension Whigs in the North, folks like Seward and Abraham Lincoln, look mm-hmm. at this nativist turn and they say, oh no. We're not interested in the Whig establishment distracting us from what we think is the central scourge of the republic at this time. We're going to form a fusion party, now the modern Republican Party, to keep the public's focus on slavery and the expansion of slavery into the Western territory. So already we've got a problem. Right, the Whig Party breaks apart in the North, and you have this anti-slavery ex- uh, third party that emerges. Right, just just to put in a word for Lincoln, it's not just that he wants to keep the eye on the anti-slavery ball, but he's very clear 
uh, and you quote him in, in your book, he says, uh, you know, if, if the know-nothings get control, uh, change the Declaration of Independence to read all men are created equal except Negroes and Catholics and foreigners. And by that time, he says, I might as well move to Russia. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a matter of principle yes. on Lincoln's part. Yes, but yeah, not... it is a matter of principle. That, that's true. It, it, he's, 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 he, he is... He is for sure on the on the progressive side of the mainstream Republican Party, without a doubt. He's not doing it just opportunistically as a kind of political tactic to mm-hmm. to defeat Millard Fillmore. Um, he's also doing it because he doesn't believe in this kind of nativist, you know, these nativist right. values. He thinks it's he thinks it's nonsense. He thinks it's anti-democratic. So, but in the um, it's in, in the South, you've got people who do sign on, uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work for them. It, why, why don't the Southern Whigs carry the day with, uh, with the nativist yeah. ball? Well, that's the, that, that's the kicker, and that's, and that's yes. really where the secession crisis um, you know, comes back into our conversation today. Because what, what happens is you know, um, that Democrats in the South start listening to this kind of nativist talk and they say, you know, this sounds an awful lot like Yankee abolitionist talk against immigrants and Catholics. You guys are in cahoots with Yankee abolitionists, <laughs> and, and 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 they and so they 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 what they end up doing it begins first in Virginia with a gubernatorial race there. Henry Wise uh, defeats mm-hmm. the Whig candidate with this strategy by saying that that. That Whig nativism is just, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. These people are actually in cahoots with Yankee abolitionists, and if you vote for them, that's exactly what you're going to get. And that strategy, which I call the wise attack in the book, mm-hmm. the wise attack spreads all over the South, and the Whigs are decimated. Because of this, because of this strategy, and the the, the most mind-boggling thing happens: the Whigs, instead of defending themselves, say, "Oh no, if you're we're we're Southern men, and and the way that we're going to prove that to you is we're going to abandon the Whig Party <laughs> and join the Southern Rights Party." And I mean, it is the most stunning example of collective abdication. And what what they do in effect, Jerry, is they 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 abandon their position as the last institutional obstacle to secession in the South. There is no opposition after 1855 to the Southern Rights Democrats, and it's basically a glide path for William L. Yancey and the rest of the fire eaters uh, to, to, to bring the South um, out of the Union um, in, uh, in 1860 and 1861. So that's, that's why I want to, you know, I, I really think that the, you know, all of these horrible strategic mistakes that the Whigs make are, are, are I think it's re- comparatively speaking, an untold story. There are very few historians, as you know, who really like the Whig Party. Michael F. Holt is one, and Daniel <laughs> Howe is the other, and there's nobody That's, else. Nobody else writes much. about them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and, and unfortunately, we've run out of time to talk about them. Um, oh, no. Our, our, it, it's 
it goes so fast every week. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, I, I enjoyed reading this book. I deliberately didn't read the last chapters on the contemporary situation, uh, but I'm going to read them now, now that we're done with our conversation, because uh, I wanted to focus on your analysis of the, the Whigs and Democrats, which I found fascinating. Uh, and listeners, I think you will find it fascinating as well. The book is called Crisis When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. Uh, as I said, I don't know if the remaining chapters will enrage or delight you uh, when you read them, because uh, I haven't read them, but I'm going to now. Uh, but if they're as, as uh, well-written as the first part, it will be a pleasure. Uh, Cedric, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.